Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Alicia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for calling me that. You know, so many people call me Alice. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia. I know, and it makes me so upset. Um, and she's like, well, you're from the United States, so obviously your name's just Alice. It's like, well, because I say my name Alicia, so that's like a more difficult, I guess. Um, but I'll take Alicia any day. Um, no one can pronounce so- my name either. I, I'm like always like Kevin, K. No one, I mean, no one can ever that- pronounce my last name either. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely not. Um <laughs> The the, the trials and tribulations of <laughs> <laughs> of being a gringo in Latin America. Yeah, um, totally. But <laughs> so, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes, this is like this is my favorite question that you ask. I love hearing people's responses <laughs> to this. Um, I'm from California. I grew up in the Central Valley in the San Joaquin Valley which is actually where I think a lot of the United States gets their food from. So I grew up in a really small town. Everyone kind of makes fun of me because I pronounce it the Oki way, even though I speak fluent Spanish. So it's Los Baños, which is um, a really like rural, small farm town. The identity of the town is like really wrapped into farming. Uh, I actually like did 4-H and FFA. And the town, like, historically was sort of, like, built by Basque people and Portuguese people, a lot of people from the Azores, a lot of people from Lisbon. Those are kind of, like, the old families. And as I grew up, there was a lot of, like, um, immigration from Mexico and from Central America. And so when we ate out, those were, like, um, which we ate out uh, of the house quite a bit. Those were sort of the foods that we were surrounded with a lot of fast food. My mom um, worked and was like in charge of, of feeding us. And so I'm reading like a lot of McDonald's and Taco Bell and pizza on Fridays and Chinese food on Sunday. Um, I think like those are kind of like my strongest memories are like eating out and a lot of fast food. My mom, like she was a cook at, or she liked to cook. She kind of like modeled herself, I think around a lot of like recipes by like Martha Stewart and Ina Garden. So very like typical like white people food was what we ate at home. I remember eating like lots of spaghetti and a lot of roast meats, a lot of like turkey and chicken. I don't think that I was always like a little bit picky. So there was like, you know, Mexican food was around and uh, at school, actually a lot of kids in my class, I remember in elementary school were like came from Mexico. And so I was like sort of, those were the foods that they brought to school. And I remember eating like a lot of hot Cheetos and, and drinking horchata. And do you know what Lucas is? No, it's like the, it's Lucas is like, it's kind of like a really spicy tahini. So it's like, I just remember like people like bringing these bags that was just like spicy chili and like dried lemon and salt. I mean like the like pillars of Mexican cuisine. Right. Mm-hmm. And you just like lick your finger and like dip it in and and suck on this like hot chili. Um, So it was like, you know, at home, it was like very, very white people food. But sort of like once I left the home, there was like this curiosity. And I was always like really attracted to to Mexican flavors. My grandfather was also a really good cook. And he was the person that that sort of taught me like a love for food. He was from California, but all of his family was from Texas. So that was like a lot of like sort of very Southern hospitality type food. I remember like a lot of fried chicken and dumplings and like 
pies and cookies and things like that. So a bunch of different things. I remember like, yeah, like I said, like a lot of white people food at home, but I was always really curious about what everyone else in town was eating. Right. And so how did you end up in Buenos Aires first? And then like, also, how did you start writing about food? Like which came first for you? Uh, I came here to study abroad initially uh, my junior year of college. And I studied a major that was like an interdisciplinary between political science and economics, but there was a really big language emphasis. And so um, I chose Spanish and you had to study abroad basically to graduate on time. And it was just like, Buenos Aires was just chosen on a whim because the program offered either Barcelona or Buenos Aires and everyone was going to Barcelona. So that made Buenos Aires really attractive by default and so I came here and I just like I didn't really I didn't know anything about Argentina before I came I had like I think the semester before I came I took like a Latin American studies class but it was mostly about Central America I don't really remember talking very much about the southern cone Um, and so I I came here to study and uh, that was like a year-long program I went home and for my senior year of school and I just like there was something that the city in Argentina and I traveled around Argentina for like six weeks there was just like this thing that was that I still can't quite describe what it was um, that was like pulling me back sometimes I, I think like if I would have studied abroad in like I don't know like Moscow or Tokyo or or any other place like maybe just sort of the time in my life I would have developed a connection with any of those places mm-hmm. but um after school I went home and and worked for like a year and then came back here and my intention actually was I thought I was going to be like a human rights lawyer that was mm-hmm. my plan and at the University of Buenos Aires there's a really great human rights program um that I was going to sort of do as like pre-law um, and then like study to, to get into law school. And, uh, there's just like a lot of red tape around that. And so I had to get a job and I started working for a bilingual culture website. And that's when I started kind of like seeing the food scene and my, like the way that I was like making friends at, at this time was I was just, it was the very first time I'd ever lived alone. By, like completely by myself. And so the way I was making friends was um, I would just like cook and invite people over to eat. And my house kind of like became the space where all of our friends would, all my friends would come over to socialize. And uh, like in the wintertime, I remember like making lots of soups. In the summertime, uh, we would barbecue a lot. I had a barbecue built into my balcony. And, um, and that turned into Masa, which was a closed door restaurant that I ran, which is like the Cuban comedores. Are they called mm-hmm. comedores? Uh, where they're like these restaurants that are run out of private homes. Mm-hmm. So cooking started first. And in one of those very first meals, um, this woman came by herself. And um, it was a meal that was always around a shared table. She was alone. It was like mostly couples that would come. And she just kept on like popping her head into the kitchen and and asking me questions about where I was from and what I was making. And we hit it off. And she had this, like, at the time, this, like, personal blog um, that she was trying to turn into, like, a website about Buenos Aires. 
And so she invited me to contribute recipes and that turned into writing about restaurants. I mean, it started very much as like a hobby and uh, just sort of like, as I kind of got more into cooking and being like, actually like in restaurants, in services with this pop-up, um, became like more curious about like going back to my roots with what I studied, which was like very like social justice and political science and economics and like trying to insert that into writing. Um, so maybe that's been like six years. I don't think, I think I've, I kind of like hit the ground running and was like pitching a lot. Um, you know, it's really hard to be a freelancer and it's really hard to be a freelancer from a foreign country if you don't have a lot of bylines. Um, mm-hmm. So I've always kind of like, I've written locally a lot um, with like sort of being able to place a story every once in a while that like went a little bit deeper than than the narrative that's typically told here. Right. And well, I mean, you're talking about what you're, what you studied and then you're like doing a kind of a supper club in your house. Um, mm-hmm. But like, okay, so <laughs> how did you get into, like, how did you decide to major in that and, and study that? At school, um, I actually entered as a film major, and I think my sophomore year, I had to take, like, a media theory class, and that just, like, totally changed, I think, like, the course of my life, that class, because it was um, really, like, I always looked at media and film as, like, a purely recreational thing. Um, And this was the first class, the first experience where I was reading theory and philosophy and kind of seeing media as a reflection of society and vice versa. And that just was like fascinating to me to kind of see the intersectionality of things and to kind of begin to not take things at face value. And so film, I mean, and that was like very natural for me because very quickly in studying film, I realized I wasn't super interested in production. I was really interested in film history and film theory. Mm-hmm. So kind of shifting to um, analyzing anthropology and economics and politics, like that that was like a very, very uh, natural shift. And media was always something that was really fascinating by it, especially because, because I've always been a writer and I've always um, been a reader and, and watched film and listened to music. And so that was, yeah, that was pretty organic. Right. And then when did you learn how to cook by cooking or? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, so I was always really curious about all these foods that I was surrounded by, but I was like a little bit picky, um, very picky. And so in the, that like in between year, between, between graduating from school and moving here, my grandfather was um, sort of like reaching the end of his life. He was getting sicker. And so I decided that I didn't know for how long I was going to be here, but I knew that if I was here for more than a year, it was likely that that he would pass away. And Mm -hmm. so I moved in with my grandmother and my grandfather and my grandmother, this was his, um, his third wife, she was a bit younger, so she still worked. She wasn't retired yet. And so she was out of the home, and uh, she commuted into the Bay Area. 
and would stay there. And so it was just like, I would work during the day. I had like three jobs at that time. And when I didn't have a night shift, I would come home from my job, my day job. And my grandfather, his very first job was in a, um, in a military kitchen during World War II. And so his, like, his introduction into cooking, besides like his kind of formation in you know, the Southern cooking of his family, was making food for two, three, four hundred like, really hungry soldiers. And so mm-hmm. the way that he cooked was always like very generous in size. And whether he was like eating alone, he was always making, you know, there was like seven things on the table. <laughs> and he just like, I was still kind of like just beginning to become really curious about about food and kind of like breaking down like my picky barriers and just like eating whatever was in front of me. And he didn't have any patience for that. It was like the, the food that I made is what's on the table and you better eat it. And uh, I would come home from work and he would, he always decided what he wanted to eat the day of. And so um, I would get home and there'd be a recipe on the table and a very, very specific grocery list. So like if we were eating, I remember like one of the meals that we cooked a lot that was um, like fried pork chops with fried apples. And so, you know, he was like very specific about like what kind of graham crackers had to be purchased to, to bread the pork chops and he knew the name of the butcher and I'd have to like ask John to like cut this like specific, uh, like, you know, an inch exactly on the pork chops. And if we were getting apples, it had to be a granny Smith and it had to be like this color and I needed to smell, you know, he was like very, very specific. And so that was sort of, that was how I learned to cook was we would like sit in his kitchen and uh, he'd have, a beer and I'd make a Rob Roy and he would instruct from the dining room table how to <laughs> cook and chop and the proper way to like heat the pan and when to know when to throw it in, when to know to take it out, when to know when to flip it. And that, so that was like my cooking school. And, and that was also, I think the moment where I really began to value um, the way people come together in, inside of a kitchen when a meal is being made. Mm-hmm. And the like intimacy that's shared around um, a dining room table and kind of like that immediate gratification of cooking something and people enjoying it. And so that, that was mm-hmm. like, like I said, when I came to Buenos Aires and like, that's how I made friends. It was because I had like, I had really kind of become addicted to that, that setting that happened every mm-hmm. single day. Right. And uh, you know, I, I guess I, I bring into this question, I mean, I'm like really fascinated by Argentina and I always have been. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. the reason like I was like super excited to go to Buenos Aires was like just to see what it was like because I just read so many novels and, and stories by writers from there. Um, and but yeah. then like living in Puerto Rico, it's funny because it's people will be like, oh, that's an Argentine. Like they'll like by the way they speak Spanish, of course, but like but like also by like just the vibe and like just this nervousness yeah. about like like it might be offensive to assume someone is Argentinian because of yeah. the the connotations of what it is to be an Argentinian. So like, um, but like you you know in your piece uh, that you wrote about the Netflix street food episode 
about the city. You you took it to task for this like colonial perspective. But I also think that mm-hmm. colonial perspective, it also kind of influences how the rest of Latin America views Argentina um, in terms yeah. of like the, the and I, I think it was evident in like there was the person who is a talking head who was like, oh, it's this is the Paris of Latin America. You know, we're more European than we are Latin American, et cetera. And so like, it's like this weird mix, I think, of like perspectives on Argentina. But, you know, yeah. for you, you live there. And so like, um, how have you come to understand the city in the way that you do, which is so far removed from that, like, we're European, we're not Latin American, um, you know, refrain. And like, how has your understanding yeah. of the city changed over the time you've lived there? So I've been here for 10 years. Um, and I remember, like, I've been thinking about that, that like term Paris of South America a lot lately. Um, partly because of that article that I wrote. Um, and I remember when I was like deciding to study abroad here, like in the brochures, that was definitely sort of like what was sold to us. And I remember coming here for the program and like the program directors were like, uh, you know, only stay in this neighborhood. Don't go into this neighborhood because it's dangerous or because there's nothing there worthwhile to see. And I was studying and I was living in a homestay that was in Belgrano, which is on the far northwest side of the city, very upper class and very much like old money, very white looking. And maybe like two or three days out of the week, I would volunteer on the like polar opposite of the city in the the southeast, a neighborhood called La Boca. And the way that Buenos Aires is set up is that as you go from north to south, pretty much in all cases, goes from these like very wealthy upper class into sort of this kind of like white collar upper middle class into this very, very middle class neighborhoods until you like reach these very blue collar kind of marginalized uh, spaces and you like if you're on the bus and you're going from one end of the city to the to the other it's really really obvious to see that distribution of economic capital and social and cultural capital and so from the very beginning of my time here i i never really bought into that idea of this is a european space um this is the paris of south america and i remember a really formative moment in understanding the why like why that exists why that idea is 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 sold is at the end of that study abroad we went to to the Iwasu Falls for like a long weekend and I remember going to on like the last day they took us to this reserve like uh this native community and they were showing us around where they lived. And it just like, it felt like, felt like such as like a zoo exhibit. It felt like, like this really ingenuine, like show. And I felt super uncomfortable and through, you know, through this whole tour. And at the very end of the tour, we were greeted by all of the children of that community who were in what I assume is like festive dress. Um, and they like sang and they danced. And at the end, the guide is like, okay, guys, you can, you know, you can, you can take pictures. 
And I was, you know, I've always really been into photography. I really like portraiture. So I was kind of like, I was, I was feeling like a little bit uncomfortable. Like, should I take a picture? Should I not? But all these other people from my group just like got up and they started taking pictures in front of the kids, like with peace signs or like throwing their arms around the kids. Like, again, like, like an exhibit of some sort. And that was like this big moment for, for me to like really see um, that negation of what it means to be brown or what that means, what it means to be Latin. And it was like so, that example is so in your face because Buenos Aires and Argentina, you know, the country is, you know, we're told like there's, there, there's no native people here when of course there were native communities here and there were, you know, various kind of like military um, strikes to, to kill off these people. There were, mm -hmm. there were black slaves that were, you know, tossed into the, the war of the triple alliance onto the, to the front lines um, and were mostly killed off. And like all of that story is totally erased. And, and what, what we are told is kind of the story of you know, we're ta we talk a lot about like kind of like colonized narratives and like taking over mm -hmm. and co-opting narratives. And I think the really unique thing about Argentina is not only is it a colonized narrative, but it's the narrative of the colonizer. Because if you really start to study history of Argentina, that phrase, the Paris of South America, what it's rooted in is, is the pillage of land in Argentina, Argentina's economy has always been centered around agro-exportation. And so when those land, when that land was taken from the native people who lived here and monetized and created at the time, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, that was all on the backs of, you know, these native people who were, who were killed. And so all of that wealth was used to build Buenos Aires. And it was the, the, a total mark of colonization because it was like this, this aspiration of being European. And so there's a lot of buildings in that historic part of the city that don't just mimic French architecture. It like, actually there are like buildings, you know, full on blueprints that were stolen from buildings in Paris. I mean, it was, it was very consciously built to um, create this culture and the society that, that in every single way demonstrated this separation of Europeanness and whiteness and sophistication. And, you know, all of these things that are part of the white supremacist fantasy to dominate um, you know, like what it means to be Latin X. And I, you know, like once I started like, really understanding the nuance of that and the history behind that. Um, when I came back to, you know, as I've like lived through the city, I've like on a, you know, personal level as like a resident of, of the city, very consciously sought out other spaces and other communities and tried to get to know the real diversity of this city. And I think, you know, and part of that is also like, you know, working in kitchens um, in an industry that globally is like, you know, very precarious and the people who are working behind, uh, closed doors in these kitchens aren't, 
generally not white. A lot of them are like brown bodied people from, you know, with ancestry from other parts of Latin America. Um, and so I, you know, I was always surrounded by that, by the people who are actually like in the street on the ground who are, who make up Argentina. Um, it, you know, it's always been like, it's, it's been like, so I've, I feel like I've been a part of those communities in a way, like the, this like idea of, of, of whiteness and Europeanness, just like, it doesn't compute to me. Cause it's not the, the, the city I live in and the people I surround myself with. So, I mean, as you're explaining, like you have this very different vision of your city than you, is, is sold, you know, to, to outsiders. Mm-hmm. So, and that sort yeah. of seems to be what you're, bringing to Matambre. And so what is your methodology for producing it? And also, you know, what is it that you hope to achieve? Um, You know, when I started taking writing more seriously um, and, and moving, trying to move away from restaurant review and, and trying to move more into reported stories I think I spent like the better half of like 2016 and 2017, like really, really chasing stories and trying to add like nuance and humanity um, and diversity to the story. And as I was pitching, you know, I had some like really great experiences with a handful of editors, mostly from like, munchies remescla kind of people at the time that were on like very kind of alternative tips in terms of their food and writing coverage but the bulk of the Mm -hmm. stories that that i was pitching i just like i wasn't getting any responses at all and there was one story in particular where i went back to misiones back to iguazu falls and i uh spent about two weeks traveling around the entire region because there was at the time this, a lot of kind of um, conversations in the Buenos Aires food world about, you know, what is Argentine cuisine? You know, how, what is this like, how to reconcile between, you know, immigrant culture and what was already here. And so there was a lot of this kind of talk about like rescuing native plants and um and and incorporating food that came from other latin communities and indigenous communities so i went to misiones because that is the region that is the most biodiverse and it's a region where there still are like guarani and and indigenous communities and i was like pitching this story and it was about biodiversity it was about sustainability it was about classism it was about this like wealth gap disparity about these uh, mostly European uh, farmers who had just like totally taken the land away from the people who lived there before and, and uh, Sherba Mate, which is what's mostly grown there. It only grows in Misiones. So like the entire, all of the biodiversity has been um, taken over by Sherba Mate plantations. And it was just like this really rich, beautiful story. And I pitched and pitched and no one responded. I finally got this this response from this editor saying, this is a really interesting story, but it doesn't fit into the Argentine narrative. I don't think that our readership would get it. And that was like this moment that I was like, oh, okay, I'm not getting responses, not because the stories are bad, but because like there's this idea of a simple story and 
what our narrative is allowed to be, what is allowed to be considered Argentine, what isn't. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, you know, retreated and was writing a lot locally. Um, when Matambre, when when the pandemic happened, it was like all these ideas were like still floating around in my head, obviously. And Matambre for me is kind of like, I was never, I wasn't being given the space to tell these stories and to raise up these these voices. And so Matambre for me is that. It's like, if if editors aren't going to give me the space, I'm just going to take it up myself. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's sort of like, that's the idea, you know, behind Matambre is, is take up space. And the methodology behind it is, you know, it's like, become this project that I think that what I'm doing, um, what it's what it's evolving into is asking questions around um, power structures and how power structures are built around privilege and talking about them as a means of deconstructing and rebuilding. And so for me, when I'm... Part of that is like being really self-reflective and recognizing one, the power and the privilege that we as writers have, because we have, you know, at the end of the day, an article is our written word. And so it's the way we decide to frame and edit and the parts of the story we decide to tell and the parts of the stories we don't and sort of recognizing the mechanisms of that. And also understanding who I am, which is, a white cisgendered male from the United States who lives a very upper class quality of life in a country where that's not the reality for most people. And so I want to have these conversations, but a lot of times, you know, obviously like sustainability, kind of like in more environmental questions are things that I can relate to in real ways. But as I'm mm-hmm. having conversations about labor rights, about gender equity, about, um, transculturalism about the trans community you know like all these things that don't touch me personally and that I can empathize with them I can understand them theoretically but I I can never live those experiences as I'm seeking people out I'm like I'm really I'm I'm I ask myself two questions one by telling this this story am I having a positive impact or am I folding into these structures of power that I want to break down? Right. And in order to do that, I'm asking myself, when I contact this person, am I being like invited into, this, into their space? Or am I demanding to take it up? And I'm, am I demanding them to tell me something that, in some cases, you know, it's a lot of emotional labor, um, so I, you know, I'm very conscientious and have been really surprised by where a lot of the interviews go because, you know, when I talked to like Gloria del Fogo and it was a really great example of this, I went to talk to her about some art project that she was working on and we sat down and she started talking to me about what it was like to be in a brown immigrant woman trying to exist in this society in the restaurant world and that was her choice I didn't I was just there I was just listening and I was like trying to act more as a microphone than anything else um so that's what you know Matambre and that was also why doing interviews was really important to me that the format take on an interview 
format so that I'm not editing these people's realities. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's just it's about giving a voice and trying to decenter myself as a writer and just kind of act as this platform for people. And right. um, it's been like every time I sit down for an interview, like the conversation goes to a place that I did not expect it to go at all, which has been like mm-hmm. just so beautiful. Yeah. And it shows in the, in the final product too, that it's, it's very organic and very um, reciprocal, you know, in terms of like how, how the conversations um, evolve uh, while you're doing Thank them. You, and, yeah. um, and so, I mean, this, I didn't give you this question, but <laughs> since you were talking about <laughs> kind of how living in Buenos Aires, you're still beholden if you want to write for like bigger English language outlets to how Argentina is perceived from the outside. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I don't know, I guess because I wrote about awards and in particular, like the James Beard Awards, which are for um you know writing that's broadly available to a u.s audience i guess is how they define it um but yeah it's just like what and i you know and both of us i guess are are self-publishing or are independent media creators um (laughs) so like this idea of like how do you define you know success for yourself and how do you define like I don't know, like your place in the world when you're not kind of going after the same um, accolades or same bylines as people, you know, as as we were kind of like brought up to understand as being like markers of significance for ourselves. Like what have have you thought about this? Like what what how are you defining, you know, what you want (laughs) if you're not going to necessarily (laughs) be going after all of these like ready-made markers. Yeah. I think that I've like, I've definitely shifted my goals in terms of what spaces I want to be printed in. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I still want to write for a, for, you know, us or uh, foreign publications, because I think it is important that those audience, those audiences start, allowing these spaces, you know, not just Argentina, it's the entire world, the entire, you know, like whatever, whatever is considered other. Um, I don't think that Argentina and the Argentina narrative is sold as unique in that respect. So I, I, I am going to like continue fighting for that, but I think that, you know, that, that, that has to happen in other spaces. And and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. like really great people that I hope to be writing for at some point, like, you know, like, I'm like reading Whetstone and Vittles and I just finished a piece for life and time that's coming out on Thursday and like really kind of seeking out those spaces because the other part of this is as I'm speaking with a lot of people, I'm kind of realizing that it not realizing, I mean, things that I knew, but like really confirming to me this idea that these changes, like nothing's going to trickle down from the top. Like the top is always going to be motivated by, capitalism and and economy and algorithms and all of those things and so that it's just following following the current and this kind of different type of of storytelling is really going to come from the base and and maybe then the, the the top will understand so um but but to 
answer your question more specifically, like in terms of like what I, what would be successful for me? Like I'm already starting to see like this little community begin to form from Matambere. I'm, you know, there's cooks that have, uh, that have appeared in the magazine that are, that didn't know one another, that are starting to connect with one another because, you know, like Americano and Shedra, they're both trying to work towards composting and, you know, they're both doing that same thing. So they linked up with one another and they're helping each other. And, and I'm seeing like a lot of little things like that. And then with Gloria, um, she was working on this project um, where her and her partner, Damien, we're going out onto the streets and finding people who are living in the, in, in the streets. And there's a lot of soup kitchens and things like that here. Um, but they, but those are, you know, soups and like very impersonal foods. And there's not a lot of contact between who's cooking your food and who's eating it. And, you know, you don't get to sit down anywhere. They just hand you a Tupper and you kind of go off and eat wherever. And, and so they started going out and speaking with people who were living in the street and forming relationships, getting to know their names, what their circumstances were, and asking, like, if, if you could choose a meal, like, what would you want to be, what would you want to eat? So they started doing this project where they were cooking food that they were told, like, this is what I want. I want a Milanese sandwich or I want a pate de papa or, you know, whatever it is. And so I kind of like piggybacked on that idea and joined them with another baker and part of the money that I make every month through Matambre, 10% of that goes to this project that we're building together where um, we linked up with this organization called AMAR, A-M-M-A-R. And that is a syndicate that works with um, sex workers, particularly from the trans community and particularly from a trans immigrant community, a lot of women from Peru. And um, they have different centers located all over the city. And we're working with one in Constitucion, which is a really stigmatized area of the city, really kind of a forgotten area of the city. And we like went, we formed this relationship with them. Um, like I said, like we were very, you know, the way I do with my interviews, we we're very cognizant of being like, we're not going to force anything here. Like we're here. We want to cook for you. We're, and we are available to be more involved than that in whatever way they want to receive us. And so, um, together with the money that I donated, um, which was, you know, not that much, uh, we were able to collect a ton of other donations and we cooked for 150 people on Thursday, last Thursday. And with our second event, we've already been able to generate enough um, talk in, the, in, in our immediate communities where like all of the meat for the, for the next event is covered by a butcher shop. They're gonna donate everything. This like organic vegetable producer is providing all of our vegetables for us. Um, we're doing these raffles where like different people that, that I've been talking to donated stuff to the, to raise money. And so that to me, like trying to figure out how journalism and storytelling and this sort of like kind of social justice storytelling can like actually translate into something real. And right. not that I think journalism is not real, but you know, like something that's, <laughs> that you can grab that you can hold on to. Um, and so that that's that to me like that that is my goal in, in trying to like look at this from a really interdisciplinary like really holistic way and um, 
and just with like one event, like we're already seeing this, like, you know, all these connections are being formed, which has been really, really cool. Right. That's amazing. That's awesome. Are you going to write about yeah. that? <laughs> Not to like make it all like a, a big circular thing, but like, um, are you going to write about that? I, so one of the women that came, we, um, this uh, bar gave us their kitchen for the, for the afternoon. And it was our first event. So we were running behind. We were, none of us are used to cooking in that kind of a volume. And so the coordinator, um, Monica, she is the one that we've been speaking directly with. And she came to get the food. And this woman, uh, Mia, who was at the very first meeting with us, when we left, like, Cause we were kind of like, okay, like what kind of food would you like to eat? And they were like a little shy. They didn't really want to tell us. And then I was like, well, you guys are all from Peru. Like, would you like some sort of like Peruvian food? And then like the conversation just like went crazy after that. And this woman, Mia just like started telling us all about all these foods that she knew how to cook because she's from the Amazon part of Peru and her parents were food vendors. And so she knows how to make sesina and, and all these different soups and, and, and braised meats and things like that. And so when we left that meeting, I was like, I was like, you know, like she's a cook, like, like she knows like what she's doing. Like this girl, like she's got, she's on top of her stuff. And, and so, and she just showed up uh, to come pick up the food and we were running behind and she, she was like, okay, let me help. I want to learn. I want to know what you're doing. And so, you know, we, we like developed this exchange and I told her like, that I would really like to pay her to give me some sort of class or do some sort of like food exchange, or I can teach her how to make Mexican food and she can teach me how to make her food. And I would like to eventually do a story with her. Mm-hmm. But like I said before, it's like, you know, I want to make sure that it's genuine and I want to make it right. sure that it's sincere and that she feels comfortable and safe to, to share that story with me and share like, you know, that, that part of herself with you know someone who is completely different from her in every single aspect um but yeah I mean I'm like totally fanboying over like the idea (laughs) of being able to write a story about that oh that's so cool so for you is cooking a political act absolutely yeah I mean like has anyone ever said no (laughs) in these interviews ah I think you Can you, I, I'm going to keep talking. Uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, everything about cooking, but, but food in general is a political act to me. I mean, every single part of it. Gloria said something really that stuck with me, which was that food has the power to dignify or humiliate. And she was sort of referencing the people who were eating, you know, the diner. But I think that um, that that goes to everyone, the, the person in the field that's that's picking uh, vegetables, uh, the person in the kitchen that's that's preparing it, the person who's eating it. Um, food like is everything. Um, it, it it represents everything: politics, economics, social issues. I don't I don't think that there's any way to separate um, food and cooking from from politics at all. Um. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I want to say, you know, like, uh, you have been, like, so generous and so supportive of this project. And and I don't think that, especially the Netflix piece, when you shared it, um, you know, it was shared by a lot of people, but it really kind of took off. And 
And I'm really appreciative of, of your support and your generosity, even though we have never uh, met each other in real life. I mean, you've just been so, so cool. And, and, and it's really sort of, it's, it's been very helpful and I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thank you. I think it's funny because, um, well, of course I love your work. So like, obviously like I've been sharing it, et cetera, et cetera. And like, it's been so useful and interesting to me to read about all these stories that are, that are things that are happening in Buenos Aires that you're not hearing about. So it's been like absolutely enriching and and wonderful. Um, but also I think it's funny that this is the first time I'm hearing your voice and I definitely expected you to be like gruffer I think (laughs) based on like Twitter or like you know like and obviously people hear my voice if they care to hear my voice because I'm like I host this every week but like I also feel like people might be surprised that I'm not like I don't know mean or more wacky or something I don't know but um yeah (laughs) Yeah, I'm not you know like I don't want to (laughs) like bite people's heads off but like it's you know have you ever seen the movie network uh yeah well i actually i saw the play with brian cranston so like that that is just like how i've felt for like the last two years of like when he's just screaming (laughs) out the window like i'm mad as hell and i'm not gonna take it anymore like yeah that's what i feel like when i read all this bullshit (laughs) and i can't take it anymore alicia i can't (laughs) well thank you again and i'm i'm so glad that we're like yeah in touch doing uh doing our thing i hope to see you when all of this is over yeah me too we can travel (laughs) yeah all right 